2: It was just before 7.30 p.m. on February 9th, 2004, when Maura Murray was last seen.
0: Her car was found damaged, locked, and abandoned on Route 112 just outside of the White Mountains of New Hampshire.
2: Her disappearance has haunted and frustrated family, friends, and a community of people searching for the truth.
0: Since that night, there has never been a credible sighting.
2: You're listening to the Missing Moramari Murray podcast. Welcome back to the Missing Moramari Murray podcast. Today, we have on an investigator that we have brought in. Into the team. So, we want to bring her on in just a couple minutes. But before we get into that, I just want to do this intro and uh, talk about a few lingering issues. Uh, First of all, how are you, Lance? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well tonight. If you're on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, you've probably seen this FBI petition that has been going around that John Smith started. And uh, we want to ask you to please sign this FBI petition to get the FBI involved in the Mora Murray disappearance. They were involved at one point very briefly early on, and then they asked the New Hampshire State Police if they wanted their help, and the New Hampshire State Police said, eh, thanks, but no thanks, we got this. 12 years have gone by, it turns out they they definitely don't have this. So we understand that, the Murray family desperately wants this. And it it, it was pretty obvious uh, from the letters that Fred Murray wrote to two different New Hampshire state governors about 10 years ago. So this is a man and a family that's begged for the FBI to get involved for a decade now. And it has not happened.
0: And it just goes to show you how aware they were of the situation before law enforcement became aware of the situation, knowing that the FBI needed to be involved. Um, We don't know if this is actually going to achieve anything. Uh, We believe that we would need to present some form of contradictory evidence to prove that this was anything other than uh, a runaway or that a crime was committed. So if, if there's some evidence out there that, that proves corruption or one, particular statement says one thing and there's evidence to contradict that statement then they would probably have cause this is stuff that that we've learned through our listeners emailing us who are in law enforcement um we would need to we could then bring it to the fbi and show them just cause to open a case on this uh however it doesn't hurt to sign this petition show that there is a huge public outcry to get something started with this case to bring some sort of closure to the Murray family. And through the contacts that we have, we know for certain that this is something that they would absolutely love to have happen.
2: And no matter what outcome you believe happened to Mora, you should sign this petition. You should want the FBI to get involved because it could help solve this. The only reason I can see that you wouldn't want the FBI to get involved is you're afraid that the FBI is going to take your entertainment away. And I I really don't think that's fair to the Murray family. If you've been listening to this show and following this case, you owe it to the Murray family to sign this petition. And again, we don't know if this is going to work to get the FBI involved. And frankly, if we're talking about a police corruption situation here, we're not even sure that the FBI would not be corrupt. But the least we can do is try. I think there are a lot of good cops out there, but frankly, there are corrupt ones. And... I know you guys have been watching Making a Murderer on Netflix. I know a lot of people have. And uh, look, if you watch that, you can't, you cannot look at that and say, oh, there's no way. For those of you who emailed us, oh, I'm done listening to this show. They're talking about a conspiracy. There's an absolute chance.
0: Yeah, it's like when people get into a desperate situation and they see that everything is on the line for them, then they'll go out of their way to do what they can to make it make it right for them. You know, if there's if they if if this is just as as simple as um not as simple as, but if they realize that they botched this investigation from the beginning, then they will go out of their way to make it look like they did not botch this investigation. And if we need to bring the FBI in to prove that, then I guess that's what we're going to have to do. Uh, something that you said about people being worried about. Uh, the case being closed and their entertainment being taken away. I mean, there's plenty of other things out there that you can be entertained with. Also, I find it a little bit more appealing to, if I was a listener, be a part of this and say, Hey, I had something to do with that coming to some sort of conclusion, that there's now closure for the family, there's closure for her friends, and we went on this—and we, we and I'm using this term really loosely just because I can't think of another word—but we went on this ride all together, and we, we actually did something good. And that, to me, is way more appealing than than, you know— hoping that it continues on, because what am I going to do when it's done? I'm going to be bored.
2: The least you can do is sign the petition for the Murray family. If you don't do it for us, if you hate us, if you're one of these people who email us or or write on Reddit how much you hate us, at least sign it so maybe the show stops at some point. (laughs) And and the other thing I wanted to say is that um, we have gotten emails and tweets from people who uh, are in the press or people who write press releases or write for newspapers, or TV stations, or radio stations. And so we wanna ask you specifically to do what you can to publicize this. Again, if you've been looking on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, you'll see that John Smith has gone ahead and had, I believe, two articles already, or there's a second one that's about to come out, two articles written about this in newspapers so he can get more signatures. We especially want your help if you're in a position like that because you can bring more signatures than just the one from your own hand. Um, And also ask friends, ask your family, tell them a little bit about the case. Don't really care if they listen. We're not looking for extra downloads, whatever. Just have them sign the petition. It's the least you can do if you've been entertained, if you've been following this. And
0: also uh, just something to keep in mind, we are coming up on the – in a little over a month, we'll be coming up on the 12-year anniversary. Uh, this is perfect timing, guys. Get out there! Every it's gonna come. It's gonna come around. It's gonna be fresh in people's heads. I believe John Smith has organized um, a few billboards up in the area to be erected for Mora. And um, with any press that this is gonna get, whether it's media by way of um, news broadcasts or newspaper articles, uh, this is perfect timing for. Us to come together and uh, and 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 try to do something
2: productive here, so thank you very much for that. We really appreciate that well and by the way, in between
0: all of our uh, the, the the pauses or the breaks that we have in between the episodes, we gather a lot of information and so if we if we sound like we're kind of going off when we start a show it's because there's just a lot of stuff and we have to you know put it all in a little capsule and and talk about what's most important and try to get it out as as fast as possible the good thing is that you you guys are downloading it so if you miss anything just go back and and listen to it again um and and know that the the things that we're saying are among the most important that we can talk about at the time if that makes any sense
2: and usually we use these intros for bookkeeping notes so this is this is what we're doing here and we have a couple more Um, On, I believe, episode 19, part 1 of the the last interview we did with um, John Smith, I made a comment about how we got no criticism from the Crossing the Rubicon episode, and uh, and that was honestly a joke, Uh, and I know a lot of people really gave us uh, some crap about that, or really gave me crap about that. Um, saying oh these these podcasters aren 't listening to the comments if they really think that well it was honestly sarcasm uh, i couldn't say that about any episode we did of this show. we get criticism for everything we do so uh so for me to have been serious there it it's it 's an absolute uh, joke in an, in itself um, and that one we probably got the most criticism for uh maybe except for uh, the psychic episode we did with Laurie Bruno. You were joking on that one. <laughs> I was being sarcastic, and uh, some people got it. You know, in, in their defense, that was pretty good. And I tried to explain myself on YouTube, but uh, and on Twitter. But um, yeah, some people just didn't uh, didn't appreciate the humor, and uh, I, I just thought everyone would get it. I guess. <laughs> but my fault, my bad. I won't. We won't do it again. I don't want you to think that we lie to you guys because we really don't. That was honestly a joke. That. Uh, that people took seriously. And maybe it just wasn't a funny joke.
0: Uh, one piece of confusion that I think we should clear up uh, is one of the comments or a couple of the comments, one of them uh, being on YouTube. Uh, some people were a little confused when John Smith stated that witness a was passed by the 01 Haverhill police SUV twice. Some people were confused as to how witness a was passed twice. And we just wanted to clarify this. And the explanation for this is that 001, the SUV 001, took Cemetery Road off of Swiftwater Road, which would bring him onto Route 112 further back west, thus making it possible for 001 to pass witness A two times. So basically, 001 double backed and ended up passing witness A a second time. One of our listeners, Alex C., further clarified and said the, there are roads that branch off to the left, the west, between Cottage Hospital and Route 112 off of Goose Lane. One of those roads, being Cemetery Road, connects back up to Route 112. The officer would have had to have taken one of these, turn right onto Route 112, then overtaken the witness. A's vehicle for the second time. Um he also says when you when you look at a map, you can pretty much clearly see it. So that was a really good comment by Alex C. So thank you for that.
2: Yes, and uh we want to encourage Alex C to uh to keep helping because uh he goes on in the YouTube comments to uh to comment about Mora's cell phone, which was a sprint Samsung model SPH dash a620 this is the phone that some people uh think faith westman mistook for a man smoking a cigarette because there there was a red light and i know we spoke about this uh on an early episode i think uh about a red light on this phone and so alex c really went into depth and he says he's downloaded and read the entirety of the user's manual for this model of phone and the only red led On the phone itself is on the external display when the phone is closed and you have a missed voicemail message. So in this case, the crescent-shaped LED light that he says looks like a smile below the external screen blinks red. He goes on to say, I think this blinking would be easy to discern even if one only glanced at the scene from their window briefly and it would be difficult to mistake for someone smoking a cigarette. Uh, The phone itself has no constant red light ever. The only red light associated with this phone model is either on the desktop or travel chargers, both of which require being plugged into a standard wall outlet, not a car outlet. So these weren't being used at the time.
0: That is really excellent because when you look at the statement, she says a red glow, right? So if she saw a red blinking light, she would say a red blinking light. Not to mention that that blinking light can't be any bigger than maybe half the size of your pinky nail. So that that's impressive. That's impressive. I'm not going to theorize any more about what was in, like, whether or not it was um, the cell phone or man smoking a cigarette. But it just further is <laughs> – it's one of those things that just keeps nagging at you, right? It just keeps, it just keeps biting at you. And you, once you think that you've figured it out, well, oh, it's probably the cell phone, right? Because the cell phone has a red light. You know, and then you get someone who's read the entire uh, manual on this phone, And tells you no, that's it'd be pretty hard to uh, mistake this in that situation for a cigarette. Yeah.
2: So I'm not sure where that leaves us exactly, but that is the kind of comment that we really need from our listeners. And so I want to thank and applaud Alex C for sending that. Please feel free to email us anytime, Murray at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to talk to you and we'd love to talk to any intelligent commenters who are going to do the research uh, similar to what Alex has done.
0: Which I think is a really good segue into our guest tonight.
2: Absolutely.
0: not only our guest, but somebody who has um really become more of uh, of an investigator for us and con- consistently amazes both of us with uh, with with what she uh, uncovers.
2: Yes. Uh, this is someone that we met uh, maybe a couple months ago. She emailed us asking how she could help. She wants to investigate with us. K f, welcome to the missing more Amari podcast.
1: Thanks, guys. How you doing?
0: Doing great. Thanks for finally joining us. I think right when we started working with you, we had talked about having you on the show, but uh, it was really, really early in everything. And, and in the couple of months that you've been working with us, you've gathered a lot of information, impressively so. First, I just want you to explain uh, the the reasoning behind you preferring us to not use your name.
1: A lot of thought went into that choice. and um, And while I'm not inclined to be anonymous, I do think that me, my name not being associated with this investigation and this podcast really helps me in in the records research specifically that I'm doing, in the contact that I have with various police departments and and records departments um related to the case. Um, you know, there Google is something that people use as a daily tool now. And I think I really want to be able to go at the records that I'm requesting for the podcast, but also just for the investigation in general as a private citizen, and that my requests are not interpreted as material for a podcast are interpreted as a private citizen looking to exercise their rights um to get the information that is that's afforded to them
0: and It's pretty good that's pretty important because i think one of the things that tim and myself have encountered is you have to kind of go through that uh barrier you have to overcome that hurdle of explaining that you're not doing this to promote a podcast or to promote a documentary you're actually trying to do something good and um Yeah. So it's an important tool to have.
1: Anyone I've spoken with for the podcast knows my name. I use my full name with them. I tell them that I, you know, help out on the podcast and I'm helping produce and that's what I'm doing. This is more for putting in, you know, the the government records that I'm researching and getting getting for the show. I think it helps me to have that. That level of anonymity.
2: And also, we uh, have received a boatload of emails uh, stating that Lance and I uh, do not understand a female's perspective on uh, this case, and... Um, people saying, oh, two you know, 30-something-year-old men, what do you know about a 21-year-old woman, college woman's uh, point of view? You guys don't know anything. Um, and so that was another reason we wanted to have you on is to uh, speak a little bit about the female perspective. But let me just say I was also a college person in, uh, in 2004. I
0: just want to say that not only do I not understand the perspective of this case from a female point of view, I don't understand females.
1: what's funny Tim is that I was one of those emails if you recall back to the first email I sent to you guys that was one of the and I and I didn't say like you guys don't know anything but I said "I, I think it's hard to speak to uh the thought process of a 21 year old woman when you've never been one and I don't pretend to know how every woman thinks just because I'm a woman but I think that there are certain things that Maura was going through that I went through from her exact perspective of being 21, being a woman, being in college, and and dealing with some of those same issues, and I do think that it doesn't mean that no one else can understand it, but I do think that it's a needed perspective.
0: I agree, and we actually got a little criticism, and when I reflected upon the criticism, I thought to myself, uh, "Yeah, wow, that's that's kind of insulting." I we had continually referred to Mora as being a 21 year old girl, and um and and we had a uh, we had someone email us saying that's she's a woman. She's a 21-year-old woman. I'm sick of hearing you guys say a 21-year-old girl. And at first I was like, oh, okay, they're splitting hairs. But, you know, a second later I'm reflecting on it, and that, that is insulting. It, you know, not insulting, it's just naive. You know, it's naive on our part to, to say that. So um, I will make every attempt to address Mora as a 20, well, 33-year-old woman.
2: Right yeah, I mean, and it's really just shorthand we weren't trying to insult anybody.
0: but the, yeah, that's what I mean when it's like it's not it's just being naive.
2: And the first thing I wanted to bring up uh, from a woman's perspective, because we got a lot of emails about this, and you commented on this when we first met you, uh, was about the, uh, the things found in Morris Carr. And, uh, and you yourself said that, um, that you have used head and shoulders at, at points. Sure. And that, that is something that women do. And also pickles. We, uh, we got, uh, I can't even tell you how many emails <laughs> or tweets we got saying, oh, pickles are a low-calorie snack. They a lot of women eat pickles.
1: They're a no-calorie snack.
2: See, that's why we need you.
1: I think it's hard. I think it's it's hard as as a young woman to hear um, to hear a man comment on what is and is not unusual for a young woman to have in her car. Because I'm not going to comment on what is or isn't unusual for a man to have in his car because I don't know.
0: You just said that, and I'm seriously getting, like, embarrassment sweat. I don't know how much we went into what she had in her car, but... We did a whole episode about it. <laughs> With you saying that, and looking back on what we actually said, it is, and I acknowledge, a little unusual for, for two 30-something men to be commenting on what is in a 21-year-old woman's car, as if we're experts on Anything. Anything. Any, yeah, anything.
1: anything. <laughs> I do think that going through what was in the car in that episode, I think it was valuable because I think it was information that a lot of people hadn't had access to. However, I think that it's very difficult without having a real understanding of what Maura's plans were that day to make judgments on what should or should not have been in her car. Because when someone's car is packed up for a trip, it is very different than what is probably in someone's car just on their average day going to work or going to class. So without really understanding her exact plans, I think it's hard to say what was unusual that was, you know, amongst her belongings.
2: Yep, well said. Is there anything else that we have missed blatantly that uh you believe we should know or that the audience should know um that that we've missed from a female perspective?
1: I wouldn't say missed blatantly. I don't think you guys have glossed over or ignored anything by virtue of not being women. I think it's, I think it comes more down to the understanding of kind of how women think in certain situations. And I think that's, that's, I think, perhaps what has, what is a little lacking um, in a lot of the talk about this case is, you know, we hear a lot about what Morris' state of mind may have been and, and Butch Atwood, and, you know, she would have been afraid and all, we hear a lot about what she probably was thinking, what she wasn't thinking. Um, and I think there is this element that, you know, she may have been intimidated by Butch Atwood. She may have been afraid if, if someone else had stopped to help her. She may have been intimidated by them as well. But I think it more comes down to, and there's been a number of articles online, I think, within the past year about this, of of things women have to think about that men don't. And um, I think that's more what it comes down to for me with this night for Mora is, you know, we, we think she probably stopped for gas. We think she probably stopped um, at an ATM on campus. We, we don't really know, but um, I even had an experience last night where I was in the CVS by my house and this guy started following me in the store. And he was an older guy, you know, kind of seemed a little bit out of it, but was clearly following me. And I found myself hyper aware of that um, and not totally sure exactly what to do in that situation. And so I think of Maura, I think of, of her in moments like that. And I think of, you know, yeah, I think there might've been tough things going on in her life in her personal life, but I more think of her going up, stopping maybe somewhere in New Hampshire and kind of being on the defensive, being on guard. And I think that's kind of As young women, that's what we're taught to do. We're taught to be hyper aware of our surroundings. We're taught to be aware when somebody looks at us twice. We're taught to pay attention when a man is following us. We're we're taught to pay attention if someone's walking behind us and we don't we don't know who they are. I I think there's just all these elements that there's all these elements of fear and, and caution that I experience in my daily life as a single woman, you know, living in the city and just trying to be aware of my surroundings and about people around around me and I think of more in in moments like that because I don't know I don't know what she was feeling you know at that gas station in rural New Hampshire if that's where she stopped and filled gas I don't know what she exactly was feeling when she um, when her car you know whatever happened to it when her car stopped on on Route One Twelve late at night or early in the evening but when it was dark I have to imagine she felt afraid um, whether there was someone there that she knew or whether there wasn't I think that to me is is kind of my worst nightmare. I think I would be scared no matter what. No matter where Maura was coming from, she had to be scared because I'm sometimes scared walking from my car to my apartment door.
2: All right. So let's get into uh, the research that you've been doing. So where would you like to start with that? The uh, The 17 article?
1: Sure. Yeah, we can start with the 17 article.
0: Good. I'd like to start with the 17 article because this is something that uh it was one of the earlier things that you worked on and it was something that was really important to us because it it was um taking us right back to one of the first independent accounts of what happened, correct? And you can now you can take it from here uh tell everybody when it was uh when it was released and and some of the information in there and then we'll we'll talk about it.
1: I mean, this article is is pretty hard to find. There's there's not a lot of resources for getting um, magazines from the early 2000s, surprisingly enough. But um, anybody that wants to read the article, you can actually get Seventeen compiled a, a book of some of their best true crime stories. And I bought it on Amazon. And um, that's what ultimately um, ended up giving me the information um, to look up and contact the author. There were some things in the article that, never really made it past that point. They never really ended up getting picked up in other news stories or in other resources surrounding this case. But the writer, her name is Vanessa Gregoriadis. And she is, um, she's a very successful journalist, actually. And one of the things that got us excited about this article to read it and really use it as a resource was that it was written so um, close to the time of Moore's disappearance. This article was published in July of 2004 in Seventeen Magazine. Vanessa spent, obviously, time before that doing research for the piece and also um, speaking with family, speaking with her friends, and doing some, I have to say, um, the re- the resources that she shared with us, I've been very impressed with. Uh, the depth that she went into and really talking to people that were close to Maura, talking to people that were involved in the case um, up in New Hampshire, talking to uh, people on the police force. She really covered all of her bases and did a great job of, I really think, presenting a very well-rounded account of um, Maura's disappearance as of July 2004. And and we all know, and, and you all know, those of you listening, that a lot has happened since then, and um, also a lot has not happened since then. There's been very little progress in this case. Obviously, we haven't found Maura yet, um, but going back to that time was able to really give us some insight into what the people close to her and what the people close to the case were feeling at that time, but also what they were thinking. And I think... Twelve years, um, or going on twelve years, it's a lot of time for people's memories to change. Um, it's a lot of time for people's perspectives and opinions about maybe what something means changes. And um, I think it's been really helpful for us to kind of go back to the go back to the facts and go back to statements that people actually made at that time.
0: And one thing that was interesting to me that you brought up when we were discussing uh, Vanessa and her uh, research. Into the case and what she uh, what she came up with um, for her article. Uh, can you tell me what she what her feelings were or what she said to you when you first approached her uh, about um, about the case and it being twelve years later? Where was her mind at with this case? Was it fresh in her mind? Did it leave an impact on her? Um, before we get into the actual article, I'm I'm just uh, very interested to hear what she thinks twelve years later after. After she wrote this article?
1: She was definitely surprised, I think, to be contacted about this article. I think, um, you know, she's obviously written a lot of pieces since then, but this was one that stuck out in her mind on some level. And I think even at the time, I was very impressed that she still had her notes. Um, And I think that that just speaks to her integrity as a journalist, but also that this case was something that she really had a lot of content for, that she really generated a lot of information. And not all of it could make it onto the pages of the magazine, but that this research, you know, she had spent a lot of time and put a lot of effort into doing it and that it it was worthwhile to her and it was important. It's disturbing to us and it's disturbing to someone like her who dealt with this case so long ago that it still remains unsolved. I don't think she imagined that twelve years ago when she wrote this case that we would be sitting here in twenty sixteen, kind of still as confused as they were in two thousand and four. She was curious about why we were seeking this information from her, why we were contacting her and what we wanted to do with it. And um that's where it kind of came to me to explain the podcast and explain that the mission of this, of this podcast, of all the work that you guys are doing, is to um, really give closure to Morris family, to find answers for them and kind of do whatever it takes to help them finally get some closure on this case. And I think for her, as someone who had been involved um, kind of right towards the beginning, um, she was happy to help now. And I think she, she very much would like for the family to have closure as much as any of us.
0: Do you have any insight as to what it possibly could have been her uh, state of mind or the way she was thinking when she first wrote the the uh, the the it's not an article, right? Because it's bigger than an article. It's more like a it's more like an expose or something. But do you have any insight as to where her head was at? Did she know that it would have this sort of resonating feeling later? Was that was that kind of her intention was to memorialize the accident?
1: every month of 17 has a true crime story in it. And this true crime book was like a compilation of their favorites of like the best.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay.
1: I think at the time, uh, you know, journalists, journalists like Vanessa journalists out there, they, they write a lot of articles about, um, cases like Mora's, And I think at the time there was mystery surrounding it. There was curiosity. Um, it wasn't something that had been talked about that much in national media at the time. Um, which was uh, kind of one of the things she shared with me that this before this article it, it wasn't necessarily headline news, um, but no, I don't think I don't think she or anyone else that wrote about this at the time, um, and I've spoken to other journalists who wrote about this uh, years ago. I don't think any of them expected that this would be something that they would still be talking about now. Mostly because I think they thought there would be some sort of conclusion, but also because I think the curiosity around cases like these tends to um diminish over time and i think with morris case in a lot of ways it's increased and that's very unusual.
0: I think you just answered something that has been a big question. <sighs> Man, i'm going to have to think about this. Because you actually did just answer something that is like why is this case so fascinating? And it's because it came out right at the right at the edge of regular media and social media and right now reporters get on this case and report about it because of what they've learned through social media. But there was that period of time between, say, 2004 and maybe 2008 where everybody was learning about social media. And and this was in that magic spot of a mystery that just keeps evolving and now we can contribute to it. Through social media,
1: one of the things Vanessa shared with me was that after this article was published, the editor of Seventeen contacted her to let her know that they had had a pretty incredible response uh, from readers to this article. That they had received hundreds of letters at the office of Seventeen magazine from um, young women reading the magazine, wanting to know what had happened to Maura, wanting to know more about the case, really eager to know if there had been any sort of resolution and. What was unusual about that was that those letters continued for years after. I think that ties into what you're saying, Lance, in the sense that this happened at a time when people didn't have social media to contribute their thoughts, opinions, theories, etc. And this was such a great – this is such a great manifestation of one way that people felt that they could connect with it was to write letters to Seventeen Magazine. And unfortunately, that's a very one-sided way of communication. And so there were a lot of people – who I think would have been eager to help and, and provide resources and provide time. But unfortunately, there just wasn't the um, social media world just didn't exist on a level then where people could really work together and cooperate the way that I think we are now.
2: No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver, Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean. Something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow
0: Give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Yeah.
1: Vanessa was gracious enough to share a lot of her research with us and her notes. um, And there's been some really, we found some really great information um, in there that we didn't know before or information that had been watered down kind of over the course of the past 12 years.
0: What do you mean by watered down?
1: I think, it's funny, I was explaining this to her. I think there's been certain things that uh, pieces of information that someone has latched onto and kind of shared their own interpretation online. Um, And unfortunately, those interpretations have then morphed into what people think are the facts. So, you know, the fact that Morris sends an email about, which we can talk about later, the fact that Morris sends an email about a comedy show that happens after she disappears means that she couldn't possibly have been upset enough to be trying to leave. And then I think that morphs into the fact being, well, she wasn't in a place emotionally where she wanted to leave.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So let's look at some of the material that uh, Vanessa sent to you and I'll let you, I'll let you kind of go with it. Uh, We have uh, Sergeant Thomas York. Let's talk about him.
1: That was one of the people that she was able to talk to. And again, I, I think the value here is talking to him in 2004, when this case is still fresh and when the investigation is still really ongoing. I think the thing that stuck out to me most about his statement was um, his comment about the, the scent dogs. And I think this is something that this is one of those instances where what I'm saying that we have this fact and it's um, we have this fact that the dogs were able to trace more ascent about 100 yards from the car. Um, That's the fact. That's, you know, kind of the baseline. And what's been read into that over time is well, she clearly got into a car because the dogs lost her scent at a a specific location on the road. Now, what Thomas York, Sergeant York said at the time was that um, the dogs were out there a couple days later, and it's really best to do. Uh, dog scenting immediately after someone disappears, uh, which obviously makes sense. I mean, other people are walking on that road, cars are driving by, and and moving everything around. But his opinion at the time, and I tend to agree, is that you have to take into account when you talk about where the dog lost the scent that a factor in that may have been because the trail was old. Um, of course, it is possible that it ends because she got picked up at that spot, but it's equally possible that the scent had been. Compromised over those couple of days, and that that's where it ended. So, I think that's a situation where we kind of take this as fact: as her her scent ended, therefore she got into a car. And I think we have to be really careful to go back to the original facts and say, well, maybe that's true, but maybe it's really just because the area was compromised by regular road traffic.
0: Right, because it had been a couple of days later.
1: Right, exactly. It wasn't immediately after it happened.
0: That little addendum never pops up when people are talking about this. It's always like the dogs lost the scent. After 100 yards. So if you're new to the case and you're looking into it, you read that and you say, wow, they had dogs there like, you know, they had dogs there, you know, they had dogs there immediately or they had dogs there shortly thereafter. Um, Sergeant Thomas York actually says the dogs were out there a couple days later.
1: Right. And I think he's even questioning the validity of using that as a piece of evidence. The police are questioning it at that time of saying, yeah, you know. We, we used this technique, but it didn't bring us any conclusive information.
0: Because of the time that had been spent between the disappearance and when they got the dogs out.
2: Did Vanessa speak to any of Maura's friends?
1: Yeah, Vanessa actually had access to a number of um, Maura's friends from high school and college. And one of the people that she was able to speak to from UMass was Kate Markopoulos. She's obviously someone that's come up on the podcast before. She's someone that comes up a lot in this story. But Vanessa was really able to speak to her as one of Maura's friends, one of her classmates, one of her fellow athletes. You can just tell from her interview with Kate at the time that Kate is really confused about what is happening. Um, and as this is kind of going on around her, she she's trying to figure out why Maura would leave. Um, not why she would disappear, but why she had left UMass that day. Um, and I think Kate was as much in the dark as any of us, and as, as any of us are now, and as anyone was at that time. Um, you know, she said that Maura didn't seem bummed out or more stressed out than usual, that nursing was a really stressful major, um, and that... She had a lot of schoolwork and a lot of responsibility that went along with that, but that, you know, it wasn't anything out of the norm at the beginning of that semester. Um, she, she said that Maura stayed up late doing homework a lot, um, that she would work. We know that she had that security desk job where she would be out until really early hours of the morning um, and then probably have to go back and do homework before getting up for class the next day. Um, none of these things were unusual in Maura's schedule um, to Kate. And um, one of the statements that she did make was that Mora. She said Mora didn't really have any other friends except for me and Sarah. And when she says Sarah, she's talking about Sarah Alfieri. Um, and that's something that I think you know is is worth talking about. She had transferred to UMass. She was still fairly new there. Um, it's a big school, um, but Mora had been very involved with a number of things, including athletics. And so it does seem a little unusual for her to only have really two close friends when she had been on a sports team for a number of semesters. She was in a nursing program which was highly competitive but also I have to um, assume from what I've heard that it was a program where people really knew each other because they were spending a lot of time together doing different clinical rotations, studying, etc. So it does strike me as a little, I don't think strange is the right word, but maybe more of an indication of Morris' personality.
0: Well, I, I'm going to have to maybe disagree a little bit there because there's a difference between having one or two close friends and being friendly and associating with other people. And you can have your sports team, and you can, you know, go out to to outings outside of uh, the sport, um, you know, the actual activity of the sport, and you can, and you can, um, and you can bond with your with your with your fellow athletes, but they 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 still might not be considered close friends so i really don't find it that odd that her her saying she didn't really have any other friends except for me and Sarah. I really don't find that that odd at all. I, I I maybe it's maybe it's something in the case where it's like she could talk to everybody, but the only people she really felt comfortable confiding in or you know spending an evening with was uh, was her and Sarah. Um, and personally, I don't think that people have many more than two or three, maybe four, close friends in their life that they can actually say that about.
1: I think when I say it seems it seems unusual i i'm using mora's high school friendships i guess as as a as a mirror to this of she's coming from this tight knit group of seven girls from high school who by all accounts she had kind of lost touch with over her time especially since she had been back at umass um so in some ways i i, I totally agree with what you're saying and in others it seems it seems unusual to me for for mora based on her past that she wouldn't Find a new kind of group of girls to hang out with, but maybe that was part of what was tough about transferring in so late at UMass. That a lot of those friendships are kind of forged in freshman year.
0: The next thing I want to talk about is something that I was really convinced about in the early stages of this case, and even in the early stages of this podcast. Fred and the motel, and um, how we get the where did more sleep in the hotel room, and all that. And um, can you uh, can you kind of can you talk about that uh, as far as what um, Fred actually talked to Vanessa? Correct.
1: Yeah. um, I was always curious about that as well. It seemed uh, it seemed confusing. But to me, I think I identified it more as, okay, we don't we don't have the facts to make up this part of the story. And that's why it's confusing. Um, And so Fred did uh, speak with Vanessa specifically about, you know, the accident in the Toyota and that night. and one of the things that Fred is quoted in Vanessa's notes as saying is that Mora was crying in the other bed and I was with the phone book on the other bed, which to me makes it pretty clear that it was a motel room with two, with two beds. That explains in, in any, you know, in as much certainty as anything can, how she could have come into like coming quietly into the room and laid down in the other bed and he wouldn't have known she was there until the next morning.
2: Great. So I just wanted to let the audience know that, uh, you know, if you want to read this original Seventeen article, we are going to tweet out some screenshots, probably right around the time this episode airs. So you can check those if you want, because what we're talking about now is things that didn't quite make the cut of that article. These are the journalists' notes. With that said, KF, what did Vanessa write down about uh, after talking with Fred?
1: She took a lot of notes about her conversation with Fred, but I think one of the things that really stuck out to to me in reading them was um, her notes about their interaction at the motel after more had crashed um, had crashed the Toyota. Um, and I think one of the one of the things that Vanessa notes is that um, Fred is talking about uh, that Mora wouldn't let him buy her clothes um that she instead said, you know, buy my textbooks. You're paying for school, so you should be buying my textbooks, not buying me clothes. And describing Mora's relationship with him, said that she was very considerate of not causing me any expense or problems. Um and I think we've heard that from Fred before that Mora was very sensitive to him and and you know, he said many times that her crashing the Toyota, if that was the worst thing she ever did in her whole life, that you know, that was fine and I think this is the same tone of his of his talking to Vanessa that you know, Mora was very responsible. She cared a lot about him, and she didn't want she didn't want to inconvenience him in in any way, whether it be financial or whether it be just you know causing him any sort of distress or worry.
2: And what did uh, Maura's, uh sister Kathleen have to say to uh, Vanessa?
1: Kathleen's interview with Vanessa was, I think, for me the most heartbreaking. Um, Kathleen is being interviewed at a time when um, it's t- the two month anniversary of more disappearing. Um, so we know that this was taking place obviously in the beginning of April. And um, she is just through th- throughout the notes about her time with Kathleen. Kathleen is really having a lot of trouble processing that this is still going on um, and that Maura has still not been found. And I think I find that particularly heartbreaking because that was two months later and now we're almost 12 years later and they still don't know where she is. And um, you know, at this time, we, we've talked about this. I know you guys have talked about this in past episodes. That Morris' belongings from her car were released to Kathleen, um, and at this point, at the two-month anniversary of her disappearance, Kathleen was in possession of all of those, um, of all of those items from Morris' car that were released to her. So she names, you know, that she had a couple days' worth of clothes, she had makeup, personal hygiene, her um, her toothbrush. Um, all the things that were left in the car. Um, But she does talk about that at Maura's dorm, that Maura hadn't packed up her computer or things on her shelves. So as much as I think we've heard from a couple different sources that her dorm room was packed up, it doesn't seem like that was necessarily Kathleen's interpretation.
2: Right. You said had not packed up, right?
1: Yeah. She said she, well, she's saying that she didn't bring any of those things with her, um, that she didn't pack her computer. She didn't bring things from her shelves. You know, she hadn't packed those things. So,
0: Which is interesting because we get a lot of people giving us feedback about Maura's dorm was packed. Maura's dorm dorm room was all packed up. But that, that might not be exactly the case.
1: It's hard to say. Um, I'm sure that the police have photos uh, would be my guess. At that point, she was declared a missing person by the time they were going through her dorm at UMass. But it's hard to say really, you know... At what level her dorm was packed? Again, I think this goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier, where it's hard to know what's unusual for a person. Uh, it's, it's some people live out of suitcases and boxes for months, and you know it was the start of a new semester, so I don't, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable making a judgment call on that. But Kathleen did talk about that. While she had packed a couple days' worth of clothes um, that were found in her car, she hadn't packed all her clothes. So it wasn't like she had packed all of her belongings, everything from her dorm to take with her, as though she were leaving her dorm for good.
0: So, what does it mean when you pack a couple days' worth of clothes?
1: I think it depends on the person
0: that you're going away for a couple of days.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I think I think that's what Kathleen is saying. She, you know, she she says a couple of days' worth of clothes, makeup, toothbrush, the, the things that she names, and the things that we know were found in Morris' car. To me, in all ways, I would feel comfortable, say, indicate a, a short trip.
0: And I'm not trying to say one way or another. I'm just saying at that time, this was April 2004, her sister, Kathleen, says she packed up a couple days worth of clothes.
1: Exactly. Okay.
0: Because that, that's, that's really big in my head because for a long time, I just imagined that everything in her dorm was packed up. Right
2: hmm And what does Kathleen say here about the FBI? She says two hairbrushes went to the FBI?
1: Yeah. So she says that two of, two of Morris' hairbrushes um, were submitted to the FBI. Uh, it did, Obviously, this was two months after, so any sort of testing that they were doing, there wouldn't have been results at that point. I don't know what kind of um, results were disclosed to the family later on, but I think maybe one of you guys can check the list. I don't know if one of the hairbrushes was from the car and one was from her dorm. I'm not sure what the sources of those brushes was, or if one of them was from her home. She had just spent the Christmas holiday um, with Kathleen. Maybe Kathleen had something at her house. I'm not sure.
2: I don't want to theorize too strongly, but it does sound like that uh, that Kathleen's talking about the things in her dorm. Um, But also we had heard uh, about the FBI, the Massachusetts FBI having been involved at UMass, um, going to UMass and also talking to some of Mora's friends in Hanson, Massachusetts. But apparently, the Massachusetts or the Boston FBI office never spoke to any of Mora's friends at UMass and didn't really go to New Hampshire to investigate. Um, And as well, it's sort of the opposite. The New Hampshire FBI didn't go to Massachusetts. So I guess what I'm saying is I wonder, you know, whatever office took those hairbrushes, whatever FBI office took those hairbrushes, it sounds like the Boston one. But I wonder if those ever made it to the New Hampshire State Police. I mean, if it's just for DNA, that's one thing, you know, they would have gotten DNA another way anyway. But uh, just saying it's a little curious.
0: Yeah. And I'm wondering if maybe, um, you know, we might be. I don't want to say uh, I don't want to uh, uh, diminish the case at all by saying this, but perhaps they were just taking the hair from the hair or the hairbrushes to have two sources of DNA so that could, they could definitely say this is more DNA. So in the future, if they were to find if there was a sighting of more later on and they found some hair at the sighting, they could compare it. Um, I mean, is that what we're thinking, that, that that's the reason why they took the, uh, the hairbrushes?
1: That would be my assumption. There, there have been other cases out there where, unfortunately, they've they've used hair as a source of DNA and it's, you know, someone else borrowed that hairbrush and it's been someone else's DNA. So I think anything you can do to really double down and make sure that you have the right, the right thing in front of you, I think that would have been very smart of the FBI to take if she had two hairbrushes, take them both and make sure that the samples match.
0: I think that's, yeah, that seems like, it, and I have no idea, but that seems like it would be kind of a standard operating procedure to not, you know, don't don't just give me one sample. I need something else from another source to to, uh, to cooperate this.
2: And then what did Kathleen say about her backpack?
1: Kathleen says at this point, so this is two months after Maura disappeared, that they are looking for her black backpack. She didn't like to carry a purse. And when she got out of her car, the guy that saw her said she was definitely carrying a black backpack. Now, I want to say that I don't I don't know what guy Kathleen is referring to when she makes that statement. Um, I can make some assumptions based on other things that I know, but I'm not sure who she was talking about. Um, this was one of the things I had initially wondered, and I had I think I had in my initial email to you guys was one of my questions um, of you know I don't go a lot of places without a purse or a backpack of some kind carrying my things in it, and that was one of my questions was. Was Mora's bag, whether it was a backpack, whether it was a purse, was that missing from the car with her? And it seems to me that this statement tells me that it was. And that Mora didn't like to carry a purse, but that she was known to carry a black backpack and that that was not found with the car.
2: Kathleen said the guy that saw her said she was definitely carrying a black backpack.
0: She might have been talking about um, Rick Forcier saying that he saw somebody cross in front of his car. And uh, I do remember him saying that it was somebody in dark clothing with a with a, with a a backpack.
2: Okay, and what does uh, Maura's high school friend Katie have to say?
1: Katie's conversation with Vanessa was interesting to me because it, it brought up a couple of facts that I hadn't heard before. Um, and I don't think they're super relevant or that they're going to crack the case. But I think it's always encouraging for us to see that this digging can bring up new information. In speaking about the group of girls that Maura was friends with in high school, Katie was saying that at first they they really didn't know whether to take this seriously or not. Um, their their first exposure to um, Maura being missing, according to this, was through her away message on um, AIM instant messenger. Um, was that there was an away message that popped up when they messaged her that said, "If you have seen Mora in the last two or three days, please contact the UMass Police Department." They all thought it was a joke. Uh, they they thought it was something funny that Mora had put up. You know, Mora was kind of a jokester. I think they they thought it was some sort of some sort of trick that she was playing on them. Um, but what they found out was that the police had actually come into her room and put up that away message to try to see if they could get contact from anyone who had seen her um, and didn't realize that she was missing.
0: And do you know how long it was between um, UMass Police Department finding out that she was missing or that this was actually a missing person case? And when they posted that
1: the way message said the last two or three days, she disappeared on Monday. So my guess is that they put it up towards the end of that week.
2: Okay, why would they, you know, ask? any of our friends to contact the UMass police department? Why would the UMass police department have anything to do with this investigation?
0: It's just easier. I would suppose for them to use the UMass, uh, uh enforcement or UMass police department as a, uh, as a channel to the state police or to the FBI or to whoever, um, may have, um, instructed the UMass police department to put this up.
1: So Lance, I'm going to disagree with you. I think they still thought more was going to show up back at school.
0: That could be it too. Yeah. And this is a way of them not taking it so seriously. Like, hey, we did our job.
1: And also that she may have shown up on campus and be staying with someone at UMass that she maybe hadn't returned to her dorm, but maybe she was staying with another student. And so that was the purpose of this away message to try to see if anyone on cam- had seen her on campus, um, if she had come back to UMass.
0: Interesting theory. Yeah, I'll take that back. I, I feel like uh, that statement about them thinking that they were just kind of like mailing it in and doing their job Maybe this, maybe maybe this is not uncommon. Maybe they they've done this before. They put up this message, and uh, you know, within a couple hours, someone's like, "Oh yeah, this person was with me."
1: College students are at, at this time, especially you know, not as much now with social media and texting the way that we use it. But during this time, you know, college students were more likely to be reported missing by their parents who couldn't get in touch with them, maybe out for an entire weekend or maybe even an entire week, um, if they weren't able to get in touch with them on their cell phone they wouldn't necessarily have the contact information for any of their friends. So I don't necessarily think that this was something very unusual for the UMass police.
2: And then Katie goes on to uh, speak about Maura's sister's boyfriend being Billy Rausch's best friend.
1: That's right. I mean, that that's the first time I've heard that. And I, I did confirm that with Vanessa that that was what that meant. But um, yeah, Katie indicated that That Julie's boyfriend at the time, that they had since broken up. Um, So we know that this interview was happening sometime during April, May, or June of 2004. Um, That Julie had since broken up with this person, but that Julie's boyfriend at the time had been Billy's best friend, Um, which would lead me to believe that it was another student at West Point, another cadet. This doesn't necessarily surprise me, especially because in a in her notes, Billy um, did tell her that Julie was the one who had actually introduced the two of them um, at West Point. Had introduced Billy to Mora. I don't know if it really matters.
2: I don't know if any of it matters.
0: It's just interesting. It's stuff that we haven't heard before. If we if it's out there, it's uh, so buried amongst other other uh, other details or non details. So just to be clear with that, Julie's boyfriend was best friends with Billy, and through that connection. Billy was introduced to Mora, Correct. But at the time of Mora's disappearance, Julie and that particular boyfriend, Billy's best friend, had broken up.
1: I don't know if it was when she disappeared. It was when this interview happened.
0: Oh, that's what I meant. Gotcha. Okay.
2: Would you like to read the emails that we have uh, from Maura uh, that had been provided uh, to Vanessa by Mora's high school friend, Liz Druniak?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: This is something that when you uh sent this to us, I read this a few times and uh I don't know, once again, it's just something that uh that's not put out there a lot and it shows personality and it just it hits home one more time that this is uh this is a human and uh someone who had a sense of humor and personality and and no one, you know, no one knows where she is.
1: I think there's these emails have been paraphrased online a lot, and I think we we knew certain elements of them, but I think really reading in Maura's voice, I think reading what she wrote and how she how she wrote it did give me kind of a different insight into who she was and and the friend and that she was to people, the sister that she was to people, and I think really the person that all these people miss. So, this first email was written on Monday, December fifteenth, two thousand three. Um, And it says, hey, ladies, one more final and a paper. Did everyone get tons of snow? UMass sucks at plowing and my little Saturn got stuck. Now I'm screwed for tomorrow. Parking services can shove it. Anyway, I feel like I haven't seen anyone in years, but the stories are great. Carly, hope you feel better, and same to Aaron Jones. I had that in Florida on spring break. Anyway, Bill is coming up the 20th, and we're seeing a Duke game in NY, then heading to Hanson. Actually, Hanover to stay with Kathleen. Julia's coming home on the 23rd. Woo! And we plan on going to Dane Cook. I hope everyone can come. Then off to Ohio. But when do you girls go back to school? My 8 a.m. final got moved to 6.30 p.m., which didn't work out as well as I'd hoped, because I slept all day. Ha, huh, screw it. I'm in a great mood. Hope you all have more motivation than I do. See you soon, Mora.
2: Okay, and then uh, what about the second one?
1: Maybe I can lighten the email mood. UMass had crosswalks with pretty much railroad barriers because so many people have gotten hit slash had accidents. I think there were seven last year. Not much to say about the rashes, though. Katie, what do crabs eat? Do they need a little aquarium? Ha, huh, I'm jealous. Ready for this? Dane Cook is playing at UMass February 12th, and we went to get tickets, and it was sold out. I missed out again, but I did some research, and he plays in Stores, Connecticut February 12th, not too far from UMass Worcester, Providence. Tickets are 10 bucks, and go on sale Monday, so let me know if anyone's interested. I imagine they will be hard to get as usual. Take care, girls. Mora.
0: And when was that written?
1: So that was written on Thursday, January 29th, 2004. That's the last email that Maura sent on this this group email of seven girls. All these friends from high school, they had this group email, and this was the last one they ever got from her.
2: She makes a joke in there about crabs uh, because her friend Katie had just gotten pet hermit crabs for her birthday, so that was actually a joke, uh, which is actually a pretty good joke. And then she also mentions hit and runs and accidents there being seven the previous year. Doesn't sound to me, I mean, I'm just an amateur, but it doesn't sound to me like uh, like this is someone who did any kind of hit and run and, uh, you know, w- w- would have been making light of it or, uh, you know, even mentioning it at all. Uh, I know the Patreet Vassey accident happened after this, but uh, some there was some speculation maybe she hit someone besides Patrice Vassy because there were a few uh, other hit and runs on campus that year. So I, I would, just looking at the writing, lean towards I don't think that probably happened. Uh, and again, she's talking about Dane Cook and, uh, and, and tickets going on sale. It just, to me, does not sound like someone who is trying to run away or someone who is trying to kill herself. And she was very excited about seeing Dane Cook, which uh, it sounds like, <laughs> well, you got to place yourself back in that time. Yeah. And I saw Dane Cook actually a couple times. Um, and, you know, he, he put on a great show uh, at this point. I, I probably wouldn't be going to see Dane Cook, uh, you know, do some stand up. But uh, at that time, he was very, very funny and known as really known as the most popular stand up comedian.
0: Especially amongst college. Yeah,
2: yeah. absolutely. Yep, yeah. and, and he's uh, from and, Massachusetts.
1: He had a. Right. Really large following. From...
2: Exactly. And uh, it says, Dane Cook is our fra- favorite comedian. We've seen all his shows live several times together. So Maura had seen Dane Cook uh, at least two or three times, it sounds like, already.
1: The only thing I think that I really get out of this email that perhaps uh, perhaps would benefit from some further investigation is whether she actually bought tickets that Monday. I've I've never heard that she did. I've never heard that she didn't. I um, I don't know either way, but... Might be helpful to know whether she had bought those tickets and you know whether she whether they were found in her dorm room and she was planning on coming back to get them. I'm not sure
2: do you guys agree that this I mean this doesn't sound like someone who's suicidal
1: no I mean i I do think that a lot can change in a week especially when you're dealing with a high stress environment at school you're dealing with a long distance relationship I, I don't necessarily think we can take this and say that it's a clear picture into her mental state on February 9th. But yeah, I do think that this does seem like a, like a young woman who has a a lot to look forward to in her life. Who's engaged in, in friendships that she cares about and who's making plans.
0: Yeah. And they're both written the same way. There's a lack of any sort of punctuation, especially in the second one. You know, there's no periods in there and there's no capitalization on, on it's like, she's kind of writing like streamer conscious in, in both, uh, in both emails banging it out and then on to the next thing it's it doesn't seem like it's it's like uh not hurried but just excited
1: what i take from this is that maura was someone who who shared what was going on in her life with her friends and maybe not all the most serious stuff but these were girls that she was keeping in touch with for sure
0: so i just want to bring up something that uh you had mentioned didn't make it into the 17 article but is uh Interesting in itself, this is a a statement from Vanessa telling you that, uh, and do we know where she got this? Where it says her 86 Saturn careened off the road into the woods, barely missing a tree. She was okay since the airbag deployed, but the car wasn't drivable. The radiator was pushed back into the fan, and the few feet of packed snow where she had landed wouldn't let her wheels turn. So we can um, – I just want to put that out there because this was something that was given to Vanessa, correct, during the time that she was writing the article?
1: Yeah, correct. I mean this is information that she sourced in researching the article, and this you know, was a sentence from an earlier version. But I think part of why it didn't maybe make it into the magazine was just knowing your audience and knowing that I think a lot of the readers of Seventeen magazine probably weren't even driving. And so – wouldn't necessarily understand what would or would not make a car drivable and that it wasn't it wasn't really adding into anything to the piece, but I'm not sure who provided that specific account of the damage to the car.
0: Well, it's certainly providing us with a piece of the condition of the car and so even though she feels like this didn't contribute to the article in 17 due to uh, the the readership. Um, it certainly contributes to what we're doing here. Important things like barely missing a tree. That's that's a pretty specific statement. And the condition of the car with the radiator pushed back into the fan and not being able to move the wheels in uh, a few feet of packed snow might put to rest some of the theorizing that goes into uh, how the damage occurred on
2: Morris' car that night. But we know that the car started later. We know the car started,
0: yeah. And this car can totally start even if the radiator... Yeah. Well, it wasn't drivable because of the, the, the... You couldn't turn the wheels because it was in the snow. But you can start the car and drive it, I mean, as far as it can handle if the radiator is pushed back into the fan. You don't really need the fan to operate the car. It's just going to overheat. Based on this description, she wouldn't have been able to go very far at all. But... It does make sense that Fred was able to start the car later on at LaVoie's.
2: Okay, and then uh, and then Billy Roush has a has a pretty good quote here that uh, that Vanessa took down. Uh, Mora did drink, but not a lot, favoring wine spritzers and never drinking hard liquor. In the two years we went out, I only saw her drunk two or three times. Says Billy Roush, her boyfriend.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, because. I mean, this was a long distance relationship too. So who knows?
2: The wine spritzers would fall in line with what, um, Kate said that, uh, that they were drinking that night, um, before Mora crashed her dad's Toyota.
0: Another piece from this, uh, 17 article that wasn't put into the actual printed, um, uh, copy is the account of Butch meeting Mora at the time of the accident. And, uh, and it's just, you hear so much stuff about how it went down with him asking her if she needs, you know, do you need help? You need me to call AAA? And what is quoted here from him is he spoke to her and said, I'll call the police and fire department. Why don't you come into my house? You can get warm and wait. No, said Mora firmly. I'll wait here.
1: One of the things I, I thought was interesting about this account is that it makes no mention of... Mora asking Butch not to call the police, which is something, again, I think over time we've just assumed as fact that Mora specifically asked Butch not to call the police. Whereas in this article, which was written very soon after and has incredibly great firsthand sources, she says that she's gonna wait in her car for the police in the fire department. So what that means for her actions following, I'm not sure, but I do think that this to me is just another reminder to be careful to really look and see where a lot of my assumptions about about this case about that night specifically and about the accident come from do they come from real statements real facts or do they come from just things that I've read over and over until they're just in my brain
0: yep and this is about as close as we can get to the actual uh, incident and I've never heard unless it's buried in there somewhere and I just forgot about it but I've never heard uh, Butch offering to call police and fire and then offering an invitation into his house so she can get warm and wait.
2: Okay. Well, thank you very much KF for um, joining us here on this episode and uh, really helping us with all this uh, research and investigation. We really appreciate it. Um, we will probably bring you back on at some point in the future to uh, talk about what else We've uh, what else you you've uncovered and and are trying to uh, help us with, so uh, thank you very much and thank you everybody for listening.
0: yeah, and um definitely have you back on because uh, there's a lot more information out there that you've uncovered and uh, we just you know gotta sort it out. I mean, even as we're closing up right now, I'm reading more stuff that that is in here that we just simply don't have time to uh, to cover right now. so uh, thank you for for uh, you know finally putting a voice to, uh, to all the investigation that's going on behind the scenes.